Hello and welcome to a special episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Now generally we record these in our guest's studio, workshop, occasionally even their homes. However, as we're all in lockdown, that isn't possible. So we're doing this over the internet instead and keeping our fingers crossed that the technology works. Nevertheless, it gives me huge pleasure to talk to Gareth Neal. The furniture designer's work generally pokes around the possibilities of craft, often investigating the handmaid's relationship with technology. Neil first came to prominence in 2007 with his Anne side table, where a traditional piece of furniture was almost hidden in a block of wood. Many people assumed the piece was made using a high-tech CNC machine, but the original version, at least, was actually assiduously fashioned by hand. Subsequently, he's gone on to redesign the traditional Orkney chair, collaborate with Zaha Hadid, and has even attempted to reinvent the wheel. His most recent pieces have been 3D printed in sand, but the material he's best known for is undoubtedly timber. Gareth, thanks so much for doing this. Absolute pleasure. Nice to be here. So this podcast is emphatically not about the virus. I mean, really, it's meant as an escape from the news we see every day. That said, we can't really ignore it. Um, So do you have a COVID-19 routine, Gareth? Um, Yeah, I guess uh, a little bit of paranoia at about six o'clock in the evening um, to whether I've got it or not. But um, generally, it centres around... um, uh, childcare and uh, trying to fit everything in around a child that's no longer at nursery and a partner who's also got a business to run. So, um, yeah, juggling, I think is the word. There's no routine to it. Because your, your partner, Ruth, is a, is a, well, a, a top-notch jeweler, right? She is, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, she's been running quite a big business, so she's been trying to keep that all going. So it's not been that easy. Yeah. So are you still able to get into the workshop? What's your, what's your setup there? Um, well, it's about five minutes from home, so it's very close. So, And I don't really share it with anybody. So um, it's pretty isolated. So actually, I can get there if I have time to get there but time is the problem at the moment so um but the but i sort of always desperate to get over there if i can (laughs) so um lots to get on with but not very easy to get on with it (laughs) so in the usual run of events i'd be recording this with you in the workshop but maybe for listeners can you give us a sense of of what it looks like well it's um it's down an alley uh behind some Georgian houses in quite a, you know, a, a, a suburb of um, East London, uh, just off Kingston Road. And it's a very small, old Victorian printing factory. So it's very small, uh, but quite charming with a nice yard out the front, which gives me a space to store lumber and lumps of timber. And then uh, the workshop itself is uh got some basic woodwork machinery in it so band saws chop saws dimension saw um all the saws pillar drill uh workbench um and then i've kind of made a sort of glass office for myself inside the space with some soundproof glass so i can uh also do have a little space for designing and thinking and uh all the kind of office work. It isn't full of CNC machines. There's no CNC machine. It's very low tech. I mean, there's. Uh, it's very basic, really. Actually, uh, it's very 
you know, nothing, no different uh, workshop would have looked years ago, really. Um, yeah, the most high-tech thing is a laser printer. That's about it. So, Gareth, this podcast is ostensibly about your relationship with timber, uh, but your latest work, these big ribbed vessels, are made from a kind of a black-coloured sand. Uh, was it a deliberate decision to shift materials? Uh, no, not really. Um, it was an opportunity that sort of came my way that I um, I saw and thought, yeah, I'd like to investigate that. So they had actually emailed me about seeing whether I wanted to explore and inquire with this material. So I cautiously sort of progressed with that idea um and i had in fact already had these designs worked up and had been looking into making them in wood at the same time and it was just proving ridiculously expensive and you know highly complex to make them and it it just didn't seem it didn't seem the right material to make them in wood so when these guys approached me and i got the samples i thought you know there really was something in that and they said that they... Who were these guys? Uh, well, they're based uh, in Europe and they're a sort of a small new outfit who are sort of uh, using uh, uh, the printing technology from car casting. So they cast... They, the, basically, the machines make sand moulds for the automotive industry and then they're kind of uh, post-processing these prints to make cure them to make them hard um so yeah but you're not giving me a name is there a reason for that yeah (laughs) i know it's relatively new technology and i want to be the guy to have a really good crack at exploring it and i you know they're findable people can find them if they want to um and uh you know i want them to succeed as a business however uh, you know i want to delay the uh output as long as i can because it (laughs) is exciting and um you know there's lots of opportunity there with it so um i'd like to sort of have a good crack at getting some objects out and uh using the process before you know lots of people do it Mm. sort of uh yeah Uh, i think that's fair enough really to uh sort of delay you know to have have a bit of a moment with it but uh, you know, won't be able to stop it. No, fair enough. So, so the, the form of the vessels themselves, uh, it, that wasn't dictated by the sand. You could have done them in wood had it been economically viable. <sighs> yes, but it would have been a real challenge uh, to have done them in wood, and people were very, um, you know, the machinists were very cautious about it. And I think you know anyone who has got the sort of CNC technology to have a go at these things um, knows that it, you know, the, the potential risk of failure is so high that, um, you know, it, it kind of makes prices and the risk for them quite, quite astronomical. So, um, and the other nature of these vessels, and I mean, I've done a lot of vessels over the years now, is that you know my the thing with wood is trying to make them hollow so you know i don't see the point in making a vessel if it's not hollow so there's an extra challenge there when you're milling something out from a solid so actually a 3d printer building something uh from loose sand means that we can make things hollow 
um, which I think is sort of kind of, uh, well, that's what a vessel is about, really. Is it has to have a void in the middle of it. Yeah. For, for the listener, can you um, explain a little bit about the process? Yeah, I can try. Um, it's quite hard to explain because it sort of, I have been out there and I, I've literally just been out there about four weeks ago. So I went to visit the space and it's a large industry sort of large uh, factory warehouse space with several of these machines, but uh, an incredibly large casket rolls into the machine and then a layer of sand is sort of uh, poured over the casket back and forth, back and forth. And then while it's doing that, it's, it's, adding an additive to the sand to make it hold together where your object is. So eventually then after the 24 hours of this process, you can unearth the casket, which is basically just looks like a massive block of sand. And then you literally dig and excavate the objects out of the sand. And it's really quite amazing because you don't quite know where where they are in this bed of sand, and you they, they've got these hoovers, and you've got lots of different brushes, and and to slowly kind of reveal the object, and then you have to very very carefully take these things out of the sand because at that point they're not, uh, you know, they're they're still very delicate. And then you've got to give them a little bit longer time to cure, and then they have to go through this post-processing uh, process. Hmm. I mean, on this occasion, obviously, uh, you were completely removed from the the making process. I mean, that must have been a little strange. I'm guessing a little strange, but quite liberating, really. Um, it was just really quite wonderful just to receive something in the post that you designed and didn't um, shed, you know, blood and sweat over. Um, so, um, yeah, it's not my normal practice. And the thing with any, you making things digitally, actually, whether or not they're in wood or they're in sand, once you press the button and the process starts, it's kind of out of your hands anyway. So it, in some ways it's similar to other digital processes. It was just the fact that this was in another country and, you know, and some people doing it that you'd never met, but you know, we did lots and lots of sampling and evolution of the design and the shape and the form and the um, the contours and the intensity of the the fins that go across it. So we we knew what we were getting, and you know, this this process gave us the space to be able to do all the sampling and the moquettes in the actual material, which you know wouldn't would would not have afforded us that. So. Um, yeah, it's it was quite strange, but quite brilliant as well. Because, as I suspect we'll see, uh, technology and your relationship with it has always played kind of an important part in your work. Um, the hack chair, which sees, an which sees an archetypal Georgian chair trying to burst out of a block of oak that you did what, a year or two ago, uh, was created both by hand and a CNC robotic arm. So, you know, this sense of technology is, is very much part of your craft, right? Yeah, I think it's it's become what I'm most known for, I suppose, is that trying to create a story around 
the process and the material and try and, you know, highlight the idea that digital manufacturing is craft, um, or I feel like it's cra- it's a form of craft. Um, though these tools are bigger than uh, I could fit in my workshop, they're just another tool to me that's accessible to you. So, and I found that to be my area really that you know there there's great opportunity in this industrial kit um to play with that is relatively unexplored um so and i'm really excited by it you know i find it the cutting edge of craft in a way where you know we can play all we like with old-fashioned tools but there's only so many ways that you know they're fairly explored Whereas actually, you know, it's kind of virgin territory, really. So I, I enjoy that. Um, it's more more pioneering, I suppose. Yeah, it's quite interesting because obviously uh, there was this kind of fetishization of 3D printing a few years ago. And you had lots of pieces of work coming out that kind of looked like you kind of knew that it had been 3D printed. And it seemed to me that the designer or maker had become rather obsessed by the tool. You're keen to get away from that, I'm guessing. Well, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't have gone into the world of 3D printing, I suppose, if I didn't think the result had some sensitivity, the material had some sensitivity to touch and feel and the senses. And I felt like this material, you know, ticked enough boxes for me to warrant making that jump away from uh, wood into, into this kind of completely hands-off world. Um, but I don't think, you know, my experience with making things and my experience with objects and understanding of a material, I think only adds to my ability to design something so it has some tacit qualities and has some sort of attraction to the hand when you have, when it when it's finished. And that's what I try and do. And I think, um, you know, those kind of objects that you refer to, Often they are people who are really loving the process of the computer and the computer world. And yes, there was an aesthetic that looked very similar. And it's a, I think it is a, it's a trap. Uh, digital processes often have a certain aesthetic. They have a, a mark in time. So I think it is something to try and avoid. And I think that's, you know, with the hack chair, that's why there's a conflation between uh, not just relying on the digital technology itself, they ha- you know, to add another layer, another a hand layer on top, a, you know, a sensitivity to the material, a, a touch of craftsmanship uh, gives these objects an extra emotional connection, you know, and I think that's what I did, you know, that, I mean, you mentioned Anne, but the the real piece I feel that I made that had the real breakthrough sort of beyond Anne was actually the George chest of drawers. It was a step beyond the Anne table where I smashed away the corner of it. And it was that moment that that element of the unknown that I introduced to the George chest of drawers that a CNC machine or or you could never draw in a computer added. And it was that that, that, helped you make the journey from the archetype of the 
Georgian Chester drawers to the digital exterior aesthetic. And in a way, I do that with the, the hack chair. I'm also trying to do that. And, and it's by trying to create uh, ways to give the wood a bit of space of its own. So on the hack chair, we mill these big lumps of green timber. So they're sopping wet, literally, as the, as the seven-axis robot arm mills away the, the wood, it, you know, it's spitting with water. So these bits of lumber, uh, and also I, I might add these large bits of lumber are the waste product of the timber industry. They're not, they're the, you know, they're the, the, the stumps or the crowns of a tree. So the bit, the timber uh, industry or the furniture industry doesn't generally want. Um, so, um, so they're wet. And then uh, as the robot's doing its thing, they start moving and it takes on a bit of a life of its own. And, you know, we have to then dry them out. And then as the drying process happens, they split even more. So, it's about designing in a space for the objects to do a little bit of something of their own to give them their own personal character. Um, and, and that's the method I've used on the hack chair. So Gareth, let, let me take you kind of right back as it were. Uh, when did your relationship with wood begin? Were you, were you always going to be a designer? I've never really thought I'd do anything much else but there was a time when I quite fancy being a war photographer and uh, I really like the idea of being a potter those are two contrasting uh, professions yeah exactly uh, both quite fragile existence but yeah I um, I I opted for furniture because a mate of mine at the time said well you could do photography as a hobby you can't do furniture um, so I just followed his comment, really. But also, this wonderful teacher of mine, and now this would never happen in a modern-day world, he knew I just wanted to go travelling, and I think my mum had been really worried about me just bumming out, basically, with my camera. And uh, anyway, this teacher, he got Alan Truman, I should give him a shout, he, uh, he literally said, well, why don't you come and have a look at this course? And he got me on the back of his motorbike and drove me to High Wycombe, on the back of his motorbike to see the course. Now, you know, you wouldn't be allowed to do that now, would you? But, no. You know, but that, that particular teacher just gave me an insight into what the world, you know, a, I didn't even know you could do degrees in furniture design at that time. So the minute I saw the course, I, I didn't want to do anything else really. But, but even before that, were you making as a child? Yeah, I, you know, my mum recounts stories of me making an angle poise lamp in cardboard. I made a bird table in wood. What age were you when you made the bird table? Six or seven. I, I'm not really sure. I, uh, yeah, maybe about seven. And it was two story. And the cat, our, our cat used to get in the middle of the bird table and then hope that the cat would get a, a bird on the top of the bird table. But yeah, it lasted a few years. <laughs> so yeah i had made things in wood but you know i'm not from a family of carpenters or chippies you know um, well no because your dad was an archaeological illustrator right yeah he he run the drawing office uh for english heritage um during the winter months uh and in the summer months he would run excavations uh mainly on roman sites 
So yeah, we were surrounded in the winter months. We were surrounded by pots and artifacts that he was drawing or illustrating. And uh, in the summer months, we were on excavations, living in tents for uh, the school holidays. So, and I would inevitably be running around the spoil heaps, digging up or finding bits of Roman pottery that the diggers had missed. And then as I got a little bit older, I was working on site from about, I don't know, I think me and my brother shared a pay packet of one of the, you know, the hired hands. And um, yeah, so that from about 12 or 13, I was, you know, the summer months, I was actually working for my dad. Uh, if I was an amateur psychologist, I'd be suggesting this notion of objects emerging from blocks of wood or even digging out sand to, from 3D printed sand uh, might have something to do with growing up on archaeological sites. But would that be uh, a leap too far, do you think? Well, it does have some, <laughs> Yeah, I think so. And my dad's fascination with Roman mosaics also, you know, I've done work with marquetry and that's, you know, and the patterns of marquetry I've been inspired by. So, yeah, I think without a question of doubt, the idea of the reveal is something that, I grew up with and I absolutely loved digging skeletons as a child, you know, and as you slowly worked your way through the rib cage and yeah, down the, down the bones on the finger, you know, I would love it. And, uh, or revealing a pot, you know, was something really special because you'd have to try and keep the object intact. So it didn't fall apart so they could photograph it or get it to the very point that they could lift the pot. So, you know, on a site that's, you know, three quarter excavated, you know, you'd have all these objects half appearing out of the soil. So I'd say, you know, I think your observation is correct. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, as you talk about, you studied 3D design and crafts at Buckinghamshire College in the early 90s. I mean, that had college had a focus on making. Was that always going to be an important facet of your work? Well, I guess so. I mean, um, I didn't. I was quite young. I was young to go to university and didn't do any foundation course or anything. So I guess I had no idea and I was pretty carefree and I just enjoyed making things and I really enjoyed the workshop space, you know, and hanging out with people and getting on with something and chatting while you were making. And I, you know, I think I f fell in love with the atmosphere of a workshop just as much as I enjoy sort of wood but do actually find wood quite frustrating also so oh why's that well it's annoying it moves and it expands and it contracts and it warps and it splits and it you know it, uh, and it changes color and uh you know it's a it's a moving playing field <laughs> you know it's and and so it has its own frustrations for me. And I, you know, I think I'm the sort of guy who has an idea in my mind of what I want to make and want to be in control of the material. And actually the, and you know, it's taken me 10 years post-graduating to realize that actually you can't be in control of it. And actually it's good fun to let it do its own thing sometimes um, as long as you're in control. But I think the trouble with wood and woodwork is that, you know, it can be a real, a really hypnotizing material and people can get sort of sucked into making and sucked into the grain of the timber to such an extent that, 
it kind of blurs their focus on what they're actually making and they get so into the joints and the uh, the the craftsmanship of it that actually they forget about the design of it and I think I've always been aware of trying to strike a very clear balance between craftsmanship and design so one doesn't overpower the other um, and I think it's really important when it comes to woodwork to try and try and strike a you know a, a harmony really. Mm. So what was your work like when you graduated, Gareth? Uh, <laughs> uh, I made a, a chest of drawers that I called COD, C-O-D, um, or an of drawers because it didn't have a chest. So it had sort of walnut drawers that were all curved and carved on the front. And they ran, actually, they ran on uh, CNC'd aluminium drawer runners. And then there was kind of... Uh, glass sides that were tape um that were tempered to you know make them hard enough to be a, a carcass of a cabinet um so that was one of the pieces i made so uh and then i made a um a chair called thoracic that was a repetition of a cnc component so even the university in 1995 had a cnc machine so and i made an object it was called it was called what sorry uh, it's called thoracic like the rib cage thoracic ah. so it was a repetition of a similar rib shape that created a chair and it was my idea that that would be a production piece but it had so many sheets of plywood took to make it that it would could never have been a production piece of furniture um so yeah i uh there was explorative and i mm. think post university without the kind of structure and network of friends and tutors then the work went really wild and creatively unhinged as i <laughs> moved myself out of any uh support networks and into the countryside and uh it started becoming more and more weird and wonderful um but um incredibly ex sort of i think you know they they probably haven't aged very well those objects or i know they haven't aged very well so as i was alluding to in my intro i first came across your work in 2007 2008 with the uh the ann sideboard um it seems to be, as we've pointed out, there was similar thinking with that object as there was with the, a much later hack chair. Only in this case, it was a Queen Anne side table from the 1730s attempting to emerge from a, a block of wood um, that looked like it had been CNC machined. But in actual fact, you'd made it by hand with a, a bench saw. Uh, why did you decide to make it that way? Um, well, uh, economics is a straightforward answer. Um I knew it could be done on a CNC machine, but I really didn't have any money at the time. And I needed to make something uh, with the funds that I had. And I could make it by hand, so I did. It took me five days to make those. Well, actually, I made nine legs to start with, and I ended up with four that were usable. So I just knew I could, so I did. And <laughs> I... Uh, I mean, it wasn't very nice, and it was. Um, at one point, I cut a leg in half and was nearly in tears because um, uh, I just turned the orientation of the piece of wood the wrong way around. But yeah, there was a lot of setting up of height of the saw blade with the calipers, 
Um, and yeah, I had to be pretty um, patient to do it. Um, but the results were really, really fun to see as it started revealing itself. Um, I'd done samples on a bandsaw, so I knew that the result was really fun. It was an economic decision. It was an economic decision, but why use digital technology if you don't need to? I mean, it's not, you know, I, I agree there's certain things you can only do with a CNC machine or a digital technology, and at that point it's right to do that. But actually, you know, uh, sometimes it's so much quicker to do something by hand than it is to even use a laser cutter at times. And, and I think, you know, teaching a lot, uh, I teach at uh, University of Brighton and the students always think that they have to use the digital technology to create a result. And, you know, you don't, you can just so easily do it with old fashioned methods and, um, people need to remember that. Um, mm. it's, it, it's not, not, necessarily faster and it's not necessarily easier with a cnc machine or a digital technology there's a lovely quote from you that i read at the time that i think is kind of interesting um where you told uh, well crafts magazine in fact that the dream would be to work for some of the big manufacturers on products that more people can afford at the moment the objects are quite elitist and i think you were talking to zanotta at the time the italian contemporary furniture manufacturer um I'm guessing that ambition must have changed down the years. Um, I'm not sure it changed, but uh, I still love the idea of designing for some big manufacturers. And I have designed stuff for UK manufacturers, such as sort of SCP, Case, um, Heels. But it's hard work, and the royalties that you get from these things are not very much money. And also in a way, you know, my other work was much more successful. So the one-off, the uh, limited edition, more creative pieces were a lot more successful for me. So I guess I sort of went with what was working better, but I still try. I still love doing, <laughs> trying to pare things back to be really, really minimal. And I, you know, I mean, I'm working on a dining table now for myself, which is ironic considering we can't have anyone round to eat at the house. Um, but, you know, I'm, interestingly enough, I'm making something very simple and very pared back and very structural and so, and economic with materials. So uh, I still have a passion to try and make things and design things in that way. So I care one day. I, I'd take the job if it was offered. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So look, the, the next time our paths crossed was in Clissett Wood in Herefordshire in 2010, where you took part in the Bodging Milano project, which was started by Chris Ecclesley, the artist and designer, and Rory Dodd, who's the co-founder of Designers Block. Um, for the listeners, can we describe what that was about? Uh, yeah, I guess it was a, a sort of a a research trip into Windsor chair making uh, for five days um, using just green woodworking, traditional uh, bodging uh, woodwork, um, traditional Windsor chair making. And then at the end of the five days, all that work was going to the Milan Furniture Fair with Rory and Designers Block. So um, we started the process Gudrun, who runs the course, um, Gudrun Litz. 
Litz, yeah. Um, she had, had, Chris had done the course previously and made a Windsor chair, and he thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if some designers came along and tried to make an interpretation of the Windsor chair or made a chair using these technologies, not even an interpretation, but made, I mean, for example, Carl Clarkin tried to make his grandmother tubular steel furniture chair, you know, so he didn't make a Windsor chair in any way. Um, but at the end of five, end of the five days, we, um, all the furniture was, literally was put on a truck and went straight to Milan. So, um, yeah, it was quite a, uh, a baptism of fire into an area of woodwork I hadn't previously had experience with. Yeah, because I think it's important to emphasise that there was no electricity. You were using pole lays, there were no kind of contemporary modern tools, and it was all done kind of you know, in the woods without cover. Um, I, I was there, I visited on a couple of occasions, and um, out of everybody there, it seemed to have quite a profound effect on you, I thought. Yeah, I I, I would definitely say you're right. I mean, I it changed the course of my uh, thinking and the type of objects I made. And, you know, exactly the, the, the things that I left with were the, the fact that this wonderful chair, I was very, you know, I loved what I made. I was really, really pleased with it. And the fact that no power had been ma- used, you know, in making it really had an effect on me at, alongside the fact that I'd been in workshops for years with noisy sanders and planers and all that gear. And actually, you know, you realize when you take and pair it all back to the very basics, it's a really wonderful, beautiful thing. And just to be able to hear the birds and be outside and be making and be with your friends um and live in the wood and live off a fire was just great and i loved every minute of it so um and the the weather was absolutely shocking so um it wasn't like we were sort of out midsummer it was well it was before milan so um yeah it was soggy old wood that's for sure (laughs) at that time of year because it seemed to inform this notion of sustainability or seemed to inform your next project, which was called in pursuit of carbon negative. Uh, And here again, you cycled to, I think a different wood in Herefordshire made some products without the use of electricity and cycled them back to SCP in Shoreditch in London. Um, What was the thinking behind that? Why did you decide to do that? Um, Well, I guess, you know, had been working at Brighton and Brighton had got a, a, um, a strong, you know, the 3D design and craft course there had got a strong um, environmental uh, credentials and they, they they teach it wonderfully and they have a great MA. And there was a guy there called Jonathan Chapman at the time who'd, who had written a book on the subject. And I'd read his book and, it you know, that had also helped change me at the same time. Um, and uh the book's called Emotionally Durable Design, by the way, so by Jonathan Chapman. Uh, so that's a worth a look at. And it's it's the idea that, you know, if we keep objects for longer and want to live with them for longer, uh, then we'll be doing more to the environment. And at the same time as this, I sort of 
established and sons had been interested in taking my uh my love seat and mass producing it and they said to me where do you want to mass produce it uh do you want to this is the love seat you uh, made in in case it would exactly yeah um and that um they said oh well we you know there's great makers in china or factories in china and and i i thought to myself well you know this is uh what's beautiful about this object is all the the fact that it was made in a woodland and can't we make this thing mass produced in a woodland for you and we kind of got the all clear and a tree was felled in this woodland in hereford not very far from clissett woods um joe and paul morton who run courses and they felled this tree and they were they were happy for me to come and make these uh love seats for establishing sons and establishing sons uh, went through some change at that time and the project was pulled and i couldn't believe it and we had we had this felled ash tree lying in a woodland so i had to rethink the project and that's when the idea of in pursuit of carbon negative came along about the idea of can we make a product that takes more carbon from the environment than we put into the environment when we make it so uh with a combination of help from sheridan and scp and brighton university and a uh some people who did a life cycle analysis we took on the mission of trying to get all the way to this woodland uh taking dairy and uh meat out of my diet and get to the woodland and make all the furniture and bring it all back uh over nine days using as little carbon as possible while we did it it sounds almost as though you were going through a kind of designer's version of a midlife crisis uh i've had loads of those yeah (laughs) (laughs) they come every three years well you wrote at the time i'm just a 38 year old man who's decided to question what he designs what he makes and what it's for that's right i think that's something we (laughs) You know, and I'm now a 45-year-old man who questions what he makes and what he designs and what it's for. I mean, I think it's something we should constantly ask ourselves. Um, and, um, you know, I, I the project was wonderful. It, the resulting objects were uh, quite uh, raw and rough and ready. And um, But actually, uh, the project, it's proved very, very successful. And actually the amount of lectures that I've done where I've just talked about that very project and about the carbon footprint and the, the idea of how we look at life from a slightly different perspective and, and how we consider the environment we work in has, I think, had a, an effect on lots of uh, uh, graduates and university students. And so it's it's proved very successful ultimately my dream of uh sailing to america delivering the products low on a low carbon foot you know <laughs> low carbon footprint delivery system failed um but um there are other people who who are building wonderful great businesses that do you know really consider these things and so 
um, I, uh, I'm pleased that, you know, I have been part of trying to think about, you know, those materials and, and the impact pieces of furniture have on, on the environment. I guess in, in some ways it also led you on to this project you did with Kevin Gold up in the, the northernmost point of Scotland, which was to reinvent or redesign the Orkney chair, which, I mean, I don't know if listeners know, but it's a vernacular piece of furniture traditionally made by farmers in the island from materials they could get their hands on. So straw from the fields, wood that had washed up on the beaches. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Well, I'd got invited to do it. Um so it was a, a paid design project. Um, however, you know, after the the, the Bodging Milano project, uh, Chris had kind of discovered Kevin and had approached Kevin about us coming up to Scotland and doing a very similar sort of project with him. Um, however, it never happened. And then when I got approached by the new craftsman to design uh, a project for the kind of launch of their company. Um, Catherine Locke, um, one of the directors there, she, you know, was a big fan of the uh, the Orkney chair and, you know, had had a very similar idea um, to Chris's and my interest in the Orkney chair. So, um, you know, we it was sort of it was there it was an instant idea and it's just been one of the most rewarding collaborative uh objects that i've made i mean it's just been such a wonderful thing so um and it keeps going on so we'll, uh i went up there with a kit of bits in a suitcase um i designed a chair literally in a few days didn't really have time to mock it up very much um sort of a uh, the aesthetic was that of a Windsor a southern design or a southern Windsor chair frame thinking um and and as if that had bred with an Orkney chair and we kind of created this <laughs> between us we created this hybrid of a a design somewhere that sat in between the two or was born from that collaboration of a southerner and a Orcadian um yeah, so I arrived in Orkney with a kit of bits. We assembled it in Kevin's workshop with Sydney's uh, uncle kind of filming us. And, and my my dad actually came up with me and he was stripping straw by the fire, um, keeping ourselves warm in Kevin's workshop. And we just worked for five days, cracking on making a piece of furniture. Uh, mm. And in the hope that we got a successful output from it. And... Um, and Kevin's still making them, and there's lots more uh, products in the um, uh, you know in the range now. And we've sold one of the chairs to the V&A just recently. So, um, and it's now on display. But sadly, uh, the V&A is closed at the moment. But uh, it's now on display with the other two uh, Orkney chairs that they have in their collection. So. Oh, is it? Yeah. How did the project go down with the traditional Orkney chair makers on the island? Uh, there are about three or four, I think. <laughs> I need to there? be careful. Uh, well, one other, one other maker has taken a real kind of dislike to what Kevin's done. Um, so, you know, he's seen uh, the Orkney chair as a sacred object that uh, shouldn't be messed with. Um, but Kevin being 
much more open-minded than perhaps other uh, furniture chairmakers. I mean, he's really enjoyed it. But it was great because when we finished the chair, people, you know, as we were getting on with it, people would come in and uh, uh, the Orcadians are uh, lean with their words. And so, you know, they, they wouldn't say a lot and they'd look at the object and, you know, question it and um and ah over it. And then at the end, they came to see it and, you know, they were sat on it and thought, oh, it's comfortable, isn't it? You know, and yeah, this is a really nice thing. So I think you, we won a few over. I'm not sure how many Orcadians we've won over. There'd be nothing, there's nothing quite like the Orkney chair as an aesthetic. So, you know, we haven't, um, I haven't tried to, I never like to say I've redesigned the Orkney chair. I've just made a contemporary chair using Orcadian straw work. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just lovely that it's still done in Orkney and we send the bits up and Kevin still does all the straw work. And, uh, you know, he uh, has other people helping him do the straw work. So it keeps business there, which is really, really vital for the economy of Orkney. You've described yourself as, and I'm going to quote you here, a bit of a gambler. <laughs> Can we unpick that? What, what do you What do you mean by that? I guess I mean I described a bit of that gambling, I suppose, with the hack chair. The idea that you know you make something and you don't quite know what the result might be. So there's a little bit of that, and I'm a you know also I break I try to challenge the normal rules of woodwork sometimes and so that that can get me into trouble so um you know there's a reason why you know there's a consistency with sort of making or joints and structure on hardwood furniture but you know and you've got to kind of listen to those rules but you i think to be you know progressive in craft you've got to keep pushing that envelope and um so you know i'll take a risk and sometimes it fails and sometimes it doesn't work successfully and sometimes it does and you know that's nice because it moves things on so i guess that's what i mean i mean i'll invest sometimes a lot of money in making an object and if it doesn't sell or it falls flat on its face then it's a massive loss uh to the business because it's if an object doesn't sell it's just firewood really um uh, it's not like um i can take it down the scrappies and get you know its weight of the weight value of it uh, back i can't well let, let's, i mean can we talk about uh vessel which seems to be a product that was very successful uh which you made with zaha hadid the um renowned or the late zaha hadid the renowned architect um as part of the wish list in 2014 um, it's part of a project that was instigated by the American Hardwood Export Council and Benchmark, the furniture company, uh, where they asked a bunch of, well, I guess, up and coming designers and makers to create pieces for some very famous uh, designers and makers. What was it like working with Zaha? Um, well, it was amazing. Uh, she's, uh, uh, you know, got such an amazing setup. I mean, the amount of uh, con direct contact I had with her was quite minimal, as you can imagine. But the kind of the way it opened my eyes to uh, digital designing was something really very special. And, you know, that particular object, those particular objects, um, you know, are really, you know, 
wouldn't have come about if it wasn't for that relationship that we developed or the fact that they were open and allowed me to come in and work with them. So, yeah, I mean, she was amazing. And actually, when I did meet her, that you know, everyone was so scared of her that I, 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 it was kind of odd that people could have sort of held her in such high esteem that they couldn't really be themselves. So when I did meet her, no one introduced us. And, we, and I sort of thought, God, what's happening? You know, I thought someone would introduce us. And I just said to her, I bet you're wondering who the hell everyone is, aren't you? And I was like, I'm Gareth. I'm the guy we've been collaborating together with, you know. So that moment of meeting her and breaking the ice with her, you know, we, you know, she warmed to me because I was just myself in front of her. And actually, you know, we managed to get these wonderful objects from the project. And, you know, she gave, we, we you know, we managed to get contracts from, you know, to do limited editions of them and sell them as a collaborative piece, which is wonderful. I mean, I mean, just to kind of uh, describe the piece that you you did. I mean, you created this vase. It looked like it had been kind of stretched. And you did it using a five-axis CNC machine. No, no, we didn't. No, three-axis. Oh, didn't you? Yeah, so a flatbed machine. So a very simple CNC machine, actually. Okay. So in terms of the collaboration, how much of you was in there and how much of Zaha and her office? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I don't think I know the answer. Uh, they wouldn't have looked like that if it hadn't been for her office and they wouldn't have looked like that if it hadn't been for me. So, I mean, I had a lot of, I did most of the design work and I showed them sketches and, and then they rendered up and interpreted my drawings. Uh, but they came out with that kind of a bit of a Zaha brand about it, you know, with this very mm. fast, flowing look whereas you know they'd picked up on my lines and sketch lines in the sketchbook and you know and and it and <coughs> excuse me and had interpreted them differently um so and then we began to um you know as we because i sat in the offices for three days with a guy you know, a modeler and we worked together. So I'd say it was 50, 50 really. Mm. Um, mm. but yeah, it, they're very fast flowing and they, they have a human touch and we kind of reference traditional making techniques or ceramic making techniques as if it was a thumbed pot, but made a pot that looked impossible to make. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, that's sort of was my thinking. And I'd also been to, Ethiopia previously and gone to the, the the dugout churches in Lalibela and there you know you enter these dugout churches from these tunnels so you know we 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 tried to capture a bit of that magic of having this kind of these points of these perspectives where you were drawn to the interior space of the object um yeah obviously you you couldn't get there but you were drawn visually to it um yeah, it was, it was great, really. I mean, and, uh, what I should add, uh, I'd like to say one thing about them, <laughs> sorry, is that I don't think I would have got that project had I not done the In Pursuit of Carbon Negative project. And because there was a life cycle analysis done with that project as well, and I think 
the fact that I'd done that previous project and been interested in the life cycle analysis of my in pursuit of carbon negative project is one of the contributing factors to why I got the opportunity to do that project. And more recently, you've attempted to, well, reinvent the wheel, which is a show at the Craft Study Centre in Farnham, which came to a close, uh, well, I think at the beginning of this year. Um, had, have you changed the wheel, Gareth? Well, I didn't. I mean, <laughs> you can't. I, uh, <laughs> um, that's why it looks like a mammoth kind of uh, thing from a, a prehistoric era. Um, so we we were asked to look at this wheel that had been made by uh, Stuart Sturr, a wheelwright that had his wheelwright shop in Farnham. And he wrote a book right at the end of, uh, the kind of industry of wheelwrights, not that it's ever ended, there are still wheelwrights, but, you know, it would have been a mass industry at one time, uh, you know, like uh, tyre shops are on our streets now to get your, you know, your tyre uh, punctures fixed. And so it would have been, a, as you know, every high street would have had a wheelwright on it. And he uh, he inherited his father's practice after the war and he didn't ever feel particularly uh, like he knew enough about uh, wheel writing to ever be a master. Anyway, he wrote a book about this trade, and we were all asked to make wheels in response to this bit of text. And I just thought, well, you know, the the thing with a a, a traditional wooden wheel is it couldn't have got any better. It was a you know, a design that had evolved over millennia to to make the most out of wood, to make the strongest wheel possible, the most easily repaired and fixed and replaced wheel. And so there was no way we could ever improve a wooden wheel. Um, so I took an imaginary look back into time and and we made a very playful booklet about the evolution of the wheel and all those milestones that makers may have had as we as we got off our knees and we moved rocks on logs all the way until we got to the horse and cart. So, um, yeah, it was good fun. So I made a ginormous two-metre round wheel with an axe. I've taken up loads of your time. You've got to get back to your family. I've got dinner waiting for me downstairs. So kind of towards the back end of this um where do you think the craft world is at the moment on one hand it seems to have gained traction in places it never had before on the other you've got things like the heritage craft association's red list that attempts to illustrate how many skills are on the verge of extinction so what's the truth of it in your opinion well where it is right now at this very moment is unknown i suppose yes that's true um so where it was pre-COVID, uh, I think it was in a strong place. It was in a great place. You know, a lot of celebration of the past, which I I love but worry about, is this idea, I call it kind of caveman craft. Um, but, you know, this this aesthetic, I was, I'm slight, I was slightly worried about the celebration of kind of, you know, lamenting too much in the past, and I'm a great advocate of the progression of it. So... Um, but I think craft's been in quite a good space. However, uh, and, you know, the opening of the new Crafts Council 
gallery is exciting and it feels like quite a we're at quite a good moment um however i mean i've got to reach out to all those makers out there now who can't get to work or can't buy the materials or commissions have fallen through for them and um whose businesses are literally the pause button has been put on well not just craft industries but every industry and every family so um i think you know it's a what place craft will be when this moment's over is uh, going to be really interesting and um, it's going to be a difficult time for craft, I should imagine. Um, uh, maybe we'll look back and in this peace and tranquility of us spending precious time with our loved ones and that actually we'll start, it, will, it may help us uh, appreciate the important things in life and um that for me is handmade objects and um beautifully crafted things and or well considered and well designed and made things so maybe it will help us along the way well we shall see gareth i think that's a um a poignant place to leave it thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it yeah well it's been a pleasure thanks for asking me it's been great cheers and to learn more about Gareth's work, go to garethneal.co.uk. Or if you're interested in purchasing, go to the Sarah Myerscroft Gallery website, which is sarahmyerscroft.com. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. Thank you all very much for listening, and I hope you're all staying really well. <laughs>